and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with not one, but two very special guests, Mel Hammond and Tegan Hammond. Nettie, can we play a few seconds of the theme song to Sister Sister without getting sued? Let's... I don't know if anyone else did that Netflix deep dive over the pandemic, just me, but okay. Mel and Tegan are co-authors of the forthcoming young adult novel, Lucy Uncensored. The novel stars a trans theater nerd named Lucy who faces challenges when her school board bans her queer adaptation of The Tempest. Mel also worked as an editor at American Girl for several years, where she wrote award-winning and acclaimed books on pets, body image, and loving the earth. And Tegan is not a race car driver who's done stunt work in film and television. So if you Google Tegan Hammond and find that, and you're like, that's so cool, I'm going to have to ask her about that when we record. Just know that I was looking at a different Tegan Hammond. (laughs) But Mel, Tegan, welcome to the show. How are you? (laughs) Great. Tegan, I obviously have never Googled you. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) I got so... Are there any biographical details that you would like to add, Tegan? Just that I have the coolest sister. (laughs) Well, we know that's true. Love that. Okay. So it's very cool to have sisters on. I think this is a Joe's Boys first. What's your relationship to little women? Mel, you go first. So I have a very specific relationship to little women. And Tegan has recently heard this rant. But (laughs) all right. It's the year 2000. I'm in fourth grade. And we are assigned to read a book from a list. And on the list is Little Women, which I have seen on the shelf at home. So I'm like, oh, I already have this book. I'll pick this one. I picked this book and one other girl in the class picked this book. And as soon as I started reading, I was like, I'm in over my head. The font (laughs) is so small. There are so many pages. I loved to read, but I was not an advanced reader. And this, I was too young for this book. I know some people read this book as 10-year-olds and they get it. I did not get it. This is a very funny book. I did not get that it was funny. I was just slogging through page by page. So we're reaching the end of the year and I was supposed to be wrapping up this book and I cannot get through it. And I look over during silent reading time at the other girl in the class reading Little Women and she has been like flying through this book. And I'm like, what is going on? How is she reading this so fast? And I look over her shoulder. Her typeface is like 14 point font. There are illustrations. There are one inch margins. I'm like, this girl is reading the abridged version for kids. No wonder she's already almost done. And I was so resentful that I did not pick up Little Women again for many, many, many years. <laughs> but now I respect it and I I have fully read it now and I uh, think it's great. So you were trying to run before you can walk and you look over at the girl at a comfortable stroll and you're like, ah! <laughs> yeah. I think that's a very common experience. We hear all the time people who are like, yeah, I love that book as a kid and then come on the show and we're like, Beth dies. What? <laughs> they read the first half, which is a common thing, or they read an abridged version for kids where they're like, you know, we don't have to have a traumatic death of a child here. That's fine. I loved that version as a 10 year old. 
Yeah, and, and probably I, I think there's a case to be made. That's the version you should be giving kids. But who am I to say? Tegan, what about you? What's your relationship to Little Women? Well, I spent an embarrassing portion of my life thinking that Little Women was about women who were literally six inches tall and lived in the walls for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I was under the impression that was the, what the book was about, but I definitely strongly believed that until I was in high school, <laughs> 16, 17 years old. I, I was like starting to figure out that's not what it was about, but I never actually read it until Mel was like, Hey, do you want to be on this podcast about little women? I was like, I've never read it. <laughs> She's like, Oh, well, you might want to start. <laughs> We're going to catch you up. So how how did that go, reading it for the first time? I relied heavily on Sparknotes. <laughs> I'm not the biggest reader, so that was a big help for me. But I got through it. All right. Love that. Did you check out any of the film versions before we got started? or I did not. Okay, so that's a world that's still available for you to get into, and I love that for you. Okay, so based on your understanding of the book so far, Tegan, which March sister are you? And keep in mind, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. I definitely related to Joe. I definitely like her story about being a writer and, you know, just kind of the whole part where she's like, I don't want to say telling off, but refusing to marry Lori and ending up with a professor, I thought... I thought that was just a really nice thing that I related to because my boyfriend is definitely not rich, but I love him. <laughs> okay. So you are team Joe and Bear. So that's important yes. to know. We get a little bit of that in this chapter. Fascinating. And what about you, Mel? Which March sister are you? Lori inclusive. So I, I have always identified as a Joe. I know that's very cliche, but I am a writer, but I did have a little bit of a new perspective on this latest read because in especially in the second half, we really see that Joe hates parties and talking to people and visiting people. And I love me a party. So I'm going to say that I'm mostly Joe with a little bit of Amy. Yes, I can see the Amy in you. For This is an audio medium, obviously, but... For anyone not at home, I need you to know that Mel has rainbow stripes painted all over her walls in a continuous pattern, and her sweater has the same pattern on it. And I feel like that's very Amy, very color-coordinated, very chic, very now. And Mel, you also, you worked at American Girl, so I think we should just do lightning round. Which American Girl dolls are Joe's? Oh my god. I would say definitely a kit. That's the first one that comes to mind. I don't know. I like I need a spreadsheet. Let's do this first one who comes to mind. So okay. Joe is Kit. Yeah. What about Beth? Who's Beth? Beth? Oh, oh man. That could be Josefina. I was thinking the same. Okay. Exactly the same. What about Meg? Who's Meg? Meg. I was gonna say Kirsten, but Meg would never let a raccoon into the house. <laughs> so you know, maybe Samantha. I'll say. That totally tracks. And then finally, who is Amy? Oh, who is Amy? Oh my gosh. Do you have do you have one in mind for Amy? I do. Controversially, I was thinking Molly. Oh yeah. Oh no, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally yeah. Amy is a Molly. 
Yeah, because just in terms of propensity for shenanigans and on page one of Meet Molly, she's like, I need my Cinderella dress for Halloween. I need to look so pretty. I'm extreme. I'm involved in all these complex social interplays at school. You know, that that all feels very young Amy to me. Although Amy now, she's come a long way. She's matured a lot, we might say. Tegan, do you want to just kick us off? And Mel, you can chime in, but do you want to recap chapter 44, My Lord and Lady? Absolutely. So we start out with a nice family scene, Lori really being integrated in the family. And I feel like most of the chapter is just kind of this long conversation between Amy and Lori about how they feel for each other and their own wealth, whether they've had it forever or just getting into it and really just reassuring each other that Lori claims to no longer be in love with Joe. And Amy is definitely trying to reassure Lori that she's not a gold digger. Yes. (laughs) So it's a very, very important post-wedding conversation here. Mel, is there anything you would like to add? Yes. Then towards the end of the chapter, Amy and Lori are talking about how what they want to do with their money and their time. And they talk about the kind of poor people they would like to help. They don't want to help beggars. Beggars have it so easy. They just ask for what they want and it's given to them. So they want to help the hardworking poor people who are too gentlemanly to ask for help, but just really need a leg up. To give them a boost. So yeah, we hear all about those plans. And just we in general, we get this, which I I see throughout the whole book of Little Women, that you got to work hard and it's not okay to be idle, even if you are rich and you've got to be helping people, but people also need to help themselves. That comes through quite strongly. Yeah, it's we kind of get a little bit of Reaganomics in this chapter, which I don't love. We'll maybe start there because I think it's an interesting discussion how really the conversation is there are some poor people who will only squander whatever help we give them. (laughs) And, you know, what we really need to do is give this money to the working deserving poor. And we're making, we're drawing that distinction and we completely know what that is. And it's, in fact, who is, I, I don't know who's speaking here, but someone says there's one sort of poverty that I particularly like to help. I think that's Laurie saying that. That's Lori saying, yes. Mm -hmm. So Lori, who, you know, who has not had a happy upbringing by some means, but has certainly had a wealthy upbringing, says there's one sort of poverty that I particularly like to help. So Lori's deciding who he gets to look after. He says, out and out beggars get taken care of, which to me reads as welfare queens. People on welfare are completely well-to-do and have steak dinners every night. I have to point out, I like to serve a decayed gentleman better than a blarneying beggar. I That strikes me as racially <laughs> charged for the day, if we're talking about Irish people, blarneying. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it was a... So it, I'm looking at Wiktionary. Thank you. It's named after a legendary magical stone in Blarney Castle that gives the gift of eloquence, but... In American slang, it took on the thing of mindless chatter or persuasive flattery or smooth wheedling talk. So that's like a blarneying beggar is like a racially charged (laughs) remark about someone who just 
talks and talks about how much money he needs and how he's going to use it well and then doesn't use it well. So I don't love this coming from Lori. And I think Amy is agreeing with him, too, because Mm -hmm. I think she sees herself and her family as falling into this decayed gentleman category. And we see this throughout the whole book. Again, I I haven't read this in many years until I reread for this podcast. And I was really picking up a lot on the themes of, quote unquote, poverty and social class in chapter one. We hear the girls talking about, oh, we're so poor, we're impoverished. And then there's a line, something like, and then Hannah cleared the table. I'm like, who? Oh, you have a maid. (laughs) Okay. So you're this kind of poor people. And I think that, yeah, that comes through throughout the whole book. And we really see it come to a point here. Yes. It's definitely one of the more conservative elements in the book, which has been kind of elegantly spun into, in the adaptations at least, as this noble, I'm going to marry for love, not money. Or in the case of the Greta Gerwig adaptation, Amy gives a very frank speech to Lori about how marriage is economic for her. And she's like, it may not be for you, but it is for me. And we do have to keep in mind, Lori is half Italian and his father was disinherited for marrying an Italian woman. So he does know that marriage is an economic proposition. (laughs) And it probably is for him as well as a racialized person in this era, but he's certainly, there's not a lot of class solidarity in in this, in this chapter. And the view of poverty is simultaneously rose-colored and really patronizing. Amy says, Joe is very proud of Professor Bayer, just as he is, and said yesterday that she thought poverty was a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. I think the way this book romanticizes poverty at times is in a way that romanticizes hard work and having to work for what you have. And even in this chapter, we see Laurie kind of proving himself to Marmy by saying, oh, I'm going to work hard, even though I'm rich and I don't need to, I'm not going to be idle. And she's very happy to hear that. And yeah, it is this romanticized being the right kind of poor, the hardworking, yeah, it really comes through. Yeah. And there's an element when Laurie gives that speech to Marmy, he says, I'm tired of dawdling and mean to work like a man. It's like the thing of someone of my gender would do is work, which is it, it all comes back. It's all connected. I'm drawing red yarns together on a board, a cork board. It's all connected. But it's even what Amy says yesterday. She said that poverty was a beautiful thing. Laurie answers, bless her dear heart, which we know means... <laughs> Bless your heart. You're so stupid. (laughs) He says, bless her dear heart. She won't think poverty is a beautiful thing when she has a literary husband and a dozen little professors and professorinas to support. (laughs) Which is, again, that's incredibly patronizing coming from Lori. But it's also interesting that he's immediately casting Joe in the role of the breadwinner, the one who's going to support everyone, Mm -hmm. which in Alcott's case was absolutely the case, was Alcott and her writing was paying for the entire family and everything they wanted. But it's interesting that Lori goes right there and is like, of course, Joe is going to be the one supporting this family. Now, Tegan, as I, I guess our resident Joe and Bear shipper, if I can put that on you, how do you feel this bodes for the Joe and Bear relationship? Well, I'm not a big fan of Lori just assigning Joe 12 children. <laughs> That's a lot. I feel like they can manage one or two kids as long as they don't go overboard and have a dozen. 
doesn't. I <laughs> between writing and being a professor, what? I, I I think you can manage as long as you don't have twelve. <laughs> Why does Lori jump to a dozen? What is going on there? Because notably, he and Amy aren't talking about having kids here. Unless I missed something, I don't think they're talking about that part of their relationship and marriage. So why is he suddenly like, yeah, obviously Joe will have a dozen kids. (laughs) That's so weird. (laughs) I mean, I feel like there are quite a few Marge sisters. Sure. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe Lori is just assuming big family. She'll continue that. I mean, the Marge family has four children. Yes. Lori's like, all right, we'll times that by three, and that'll be what Joe and Bear have. Yeah, it's very odd. I don't have an an analysis for that. Four children already is, it's an amount that I have found in modern adaptations of Little Women. People, they want to look for some excuse for that. They're a blended family, or the family is religious, or Amy was an accident. (laughs) People, they need to find an excuse for kids in 2023. And obviously... Back in the day, this would have been more normal, but I feel like a dozen. What indication has Joe ever given to Lori, first of all, that she even wants kids, let alone 12 of them? That is a great, big, beautiful mystery to me. Well, okay, here's a question How many Hummel children were there? Oh, I want, okay, so I wonder if Lori is making a jab at Bear, like, oh, yeah, he's so low class of course they're gonna pump out a dozen babies just like the hummels that definitely could be because he's already saying he says he seems to like professor bear he says that he is a i consider him a trump in the fullest sense of that expressive word which in this meaning it's an excellent person a fine fellow a good egg this is wiktionary again but actually on wiktionary little women is a source for this usage of trump so he doesn't mean it negatively. Obviously, it's hard to hear the word Trump in right. 2023. Yeah. But <laughs> I do wish he was a little younger and a good deal richer. So Lori does have this prejudice, which is jumping out and talking about blarneying beggars. And he talks about, he's like, maybe we could invent a rich relation who shall obligingly die out there in Germany and leave him a tidy little fortune. So there's an under, there's some kind of understanding here of it's hard for me to imagine or understand what German or Germany signifies. The Hummels, as you point out, are German. That's kind of, these are the, <laughs> so the only examples of Germans we have in this book are the Hummels and then Professor Bayer, and they're both four. And I'm, I'm thinking about the Alcotts. I know Louisa May Alcott was born in Germantown, Pennsylvania. So I don't know. I'm just guessing by the name. <laughs> grew up around some German people. Yeah. yeah. I just wonder what she observed that contributed to these character depictions. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and it's odd because we know that she also loved German literature. She loved Goethe. So it's not as though she had a low opinion of Germany generally, but this is very very weird. I'm sorry, we're finding a lot of negativity in this chapter. Is there anything here that, because so much of this, I, a lot of this chapter is Lori and Amy deciding that they're going to be philanthropists and find worthy causes and people to support and blech to the politics of all that. But above all, pulling back big picture, this is Amy and Lori talking about their marriage and their relationship and ha- what they plan to do. How do we feel about that, Tegan? How, are you on board with Amy and Lori as an item? Yeah, 
<laughs> I see no reason not to be. Nope. I'm happy for them. Okay. Mal, you were, you were happy about her nose. Yeah, I love this line. Amy says, don't laugh, but your nose is such a comfort to me. And Amy softly caressed the well-cut feature with artistic satisfaction. Amy married into a good nose. I love that for her. <laughs> you saw her in book one with the clothespin trying yes. to like make her nose have a different shape. And look at her now. That's what all of this was really about. She was like, listen, <laughs> I've been on the AI future baby generator. I've seen the future. <laughs> I need a good nose. I, I think that's I think that's a cute moment. There's something about Amy and Lori and their playfulness together. And there's some, something about because they have all this money and they want for nothing. They come back and they have so much shit in their bags from Paris that Lori can't even find the thing he wants. They are just completely carefree and happy. And this is playtime for them. And that's kind of cute to see. Yeah, it's interesting. They're talking about how they're going to spend their money. They're not talking. It's a very different kind of newlywed scene than what we saw from Meg, where she was trying to figure out how I'm going to make this jelly set, mm-hmm. how I'm going to manage when he brings, brings friends home. They are just like, we don't hear anything about domestic duties or how are kids going to be. That's not what this is. This is a fantasy of they lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. It's very different. And... You asked Tegan about whether she approves of the union. And I mean, do I believe that Lori is fully over Joe? No, but I don't think their marriage is about them being a perfect match for each other. I think their marriage is about Lori joining the March family. And this was the last possible way to do it after Joe declined his proposal. And so I'm I'm happy for him. I, I mean, and I think Joe's happy too that he's a part of the family. And if this is what it took to make that happen, so be it. Yeah, I think that's a very important point is that this may be less about true love than about I get to call the number of times in this chapter alone that he calls Marmy mother, madam mother, <laughs> mama. He obviously relishes being able to do that. And I think that's a big, big part of it, just getting to be part of this family group and finally getting to call Marmy mother because we know that he really misses his own mom. I'm going to write a little bit of fan fiction here, if that's okay. Yes. I'm going to tell you. I got really excited. We says, so Lori goes to the March house where Amy is hanging out with Marmy And he says, please, Madam Mother, could you lend me my wife for half an hour? The luggage has come, and I've been making hay of Amy's Paris finery, trying to find some things I want. And I would love to think that he's been making hay of Amy's Paris finery, trying to find some things he wants, because he wants to try on Amy's Paris finery. Oh! That's my fanfic. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) What is She says, oh, you're looking for your boot, whatever. To put home, oh, yes, and that sure, yeah, you're looking yeah. for your boot putter on her. I was, I'll find your boot, Jack. I suppose that's what you're rummaging after among my things. Men are so helpless. I, <laughs> why would the boot, Jack, be in Amy's Paris finery? First of all, it's so funny. It's like she's making him an excuse. She has like, oh, right, <laughs> you're looking for this manly thing. I, do you think Amy's in on it? Is she like, oh, yeah, go ahead, my lord, yeah. <laughs> I think I the version of Amy and Lori that I can most get on board with is this femme for femme thing. Mm-hmm. And I think 
Amy in her mind, she's like, I we're gonna play dress up. It's gonna be so much fun. I'm gonna have a guy who knows how to bathe. <laughs> the best thing ever. <laughs> Let's track the boot jack though. Cause th- does that come up? Do they find it? Yes, it does come up one other time. Yes. Later in the evening when his mind had been set at rest about the boot jack. So that's I feel like that's vague. Right. I feel like that doesn't maybe it was all about a boot jack. Maybe it was innuendo for something else. <laughs> Can I point out another line that I wondered about as far as... Mm. Okay. So they're talking about... Amy's talking about how she forgot Laurie was rich when she said yes. Yes. And Amy, who was very dignified in public and very fond in private, gave gave convincing proofs of the truth of her words. What kind of convincing proof? Is that a sex scene right there? I I think you liked it. Yeah. Let's zoom back in. So, oh, my dearest boy, don't say that. I forgot you were rich when I said yes. I'd have married you if you hadn't a penny and sometimes wish you were poor that I might show you how much I love you. And Amy, who was very dignified in public and very fond in private, a wink, wink, gave convincing proofs of the truth of her words. Yeah, that that might be. I mean, it feels like then Lori answers in dialogue. So it's not like an hour later after they were like putting their clothes back on. (laughs) Maybe that's a fan fiction scene to be written. Yeah, I think certainly. Really? Yeah, it, that's definitely how I read it, though. No, I, yeah, I think probably yeah. they pulled back to do a little makey outy. And then Lori said, you don't really think I'm such a mercenary creature. Although then he said, it would break my heart if you didn't believe that I'd gladly pull in the same boat with you, even if you had to get your living by rowing on the lake. And so referring to their the proposal scene in the boat, which... Alcott pulled back and said, and then the two lovers added to the pretty tableau of the mountains, which could have been that they were getting down in the boat. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying. And there is another Alcott short story, which is one of the sensation stories, which is extremely funny because essentially, I guess weed gummies have been around forever because they try some hashish bonbons in this story. This isn't the marches. This is a completely unrelated thing, but... The climax of that story is that after the young people have tried the hashish bonbons, the man is overcome by violent lust and flies at a girl that he's in a rowboat with and tries to sexually assault her. And she pushes him away. And the lesson is don't eat hashish bonbons. But we know that boats, we know that Alcott knew that the boat could be a location for (laughs) sexy times. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, okay. So we have, I think... It's probably more likely that something sexy is going on in that scene than that Lori is actually trying on Amy's Paris finery. But I can dream about the the Paris finery. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that, that it's interesting here is that, so Lori says they want to know how things are going so far. And Lori makes an analogy about the weather. And Amy kind of carries on with this and says, I'm not afraid of storms for I'm learning how to sail my ship. And that's a very popular quotation from this book. That's the quote that goes on mugs, t-shirts, etc. And I was surprised to see it here coming out of Amy's mouth. I don't know why that surprised me because that's a quote that I had associated with Joe. It's interesting that here she's steering the ship, and but the other metaphor is that they're rowing the boat together. Yes. Yeah. Maybe it means like she's topping. No, I, I mean, for real, all up until now, the language has been like, Amy rules, Amy dominates, Lori loves to submit to Amy. 
when he Amy picks Lori up in Paris, she's driving a carriage and holding the reins. And Lori's like, oh, let me drive the carriage. And she's like, absolutely not. I'm driving. <laughs> so See, as we're talking, I'm relating even more to Amy. Yes. And also the Amy-Molly links are coming out even more. Molly arrived a little bit too late for carriages, but this is absolutely just this pushiness. Yeah. So it's interesting. She's sailing her ship. And that's in comparison to Lori being compared to a weathercock without the wind who's kind of flipping around. Amy keeps me pointing due west most of the time, right? And Amy is the one sailing the ship. So it's Amy is in control of Lori. The chapter opens with Lori coming over to the March's house, asking his mother-in-law if his wife can help him with something. <laughs> so, And Amy says, men are so helpless, mother with a matronly air, which delighted her husband. So yeah, he lo- he absolutely loves being in the submissive role in this relationship, which is interesting to me. And between the two of them, Amy has had to work a lot harder during her life because she hasn't had the pro yeah. wealth. And so she knows how to do stuff and is used to hard work in a way that Lori isn't. I feel like throughout the book, Lori has needed a push to do anything, do well in school, stop gambling, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So in many ways, Amy is more of an adult, even though she's much younger. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. She's had to live a lot more life than Lori. She's had more serious responsibilities than Lori, even, even being the baby of the family. It's occurring to me also that maybe something that makes this relationship work is that it's in, in what other marriage to a man could Amy take on this kind of dominant role, mm-hmm. right? This is not the dynamic with John Brooke and Meg. Yeah, totally. No. I don't even think it's the dynamic with Joe and Professor Bear, frankly. Mm-mm. Amy and Laurie just have such a history. I keep thinking back mm-hmm. to that scene where in book one where Amy writes her will And Laurie is like teasing her. They just have so much history. And that definitely comes through here. They're so comfortable with each other. And Amy is comfortable taking charge in a way that Meg and Brooke definitely are not. If Amy was struggling to take care of twins, she would never let Laurie go down to his friend's house. No. Hang out with other people while she's struggling. No way. Yeah, absolutely not. That's not. I wish we got to see more of Amy and Lori parenting. And I guess we will in Little Men and Joe's Boys. But yeah, the newlywed dynamic is very different. And I think it it is that way because from the beginning, the gender roles here have been a little bit subverted. Not entirely. There's still an understanding that it's Lori's wealth that's making this whole thing turn. But definitely it's as Tegan said, Amy Tops. <laughs> Absolutely, Amy Tops. My friends and I came up with and articulated this theory to describe relationships that we're drawn to in fiction over and over again. We call it the dynamic. And it's a relationship between a person who is an absolute nightmare and a person who is a sweater boy. And <laughs> so in any kind of relationship, we love when a person is an absolute nightmare and a person is a sweater boy and just the quintessential example of that is Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I have never, I I was never big into Sherlock, but I had a lot of friends who were very into it and very into John Locke and this complete weirdo freak who is isolated and a little bit at odds with the world. And this 
sweater boy who just has so much love to give and thinks that the absolute nightmare is so cool and so exciting, even though nobody else does. I think the thing is in any, and that's, we don't have to get into all that, but one of the pitfalls of being a sweater boy, sorry, of being, there are absolute nightmares who think they have to suppress their absolute nightmareness in order to be loved. And I think that has been Amy. I think Amy March is an absolute nightmare. Especially when she burns those pages. I'm mad at her about that. Yes. Burns those pages, falls through the ice. We've talked before about Amy exhibiting high femme camp antics, but yeah, she's a weirdo. She's a little bit of a freak. She has always, yes, she's a socialite, but she is always bumped with her schoolmates, her friends. She hasn't always gotten along well with people. (laughs) And it's kind of nice that Lori, who is a sweater boy to the max, who has been Joe's sweater boy, because Joe is also an absolute nightmare. And now gets to be Amy's sweater boy. And Amy just gets to relax and be an absolute nightmare. Is this making sense? Are we, do we have questions about the nomenclature? I love that for her. Yeah. She's made it. She's made it. So yeah, I think it's a nice, I think it must be a relief for Amy to be able to let her hair down and a relief for Lori to have his careful attention be met with equal love, right? Which Joe is not able to give him or in Alcott's writing has not been able at various points to give him. I'm still very last chapter. It seemed that Joe still had some feelings for Lori. And we know that Joe at this point has been reconsidering whether she made a mistake, whether she should have said yes to Lori, even if she didn't quote unquote love him. So Joe and Lori is a big mystery may never untangle. Tegan, do you think there are any circumstances in which Joe and Lori could have worked? I don't think they would have been happy. I feel like Joe would have been miserable. (laughs) Lori would have probably been happy, but I think Joe would have just, I don't know, run away after about four months. First, the first time Lori tries to (laughs) have any sort of social event, Joe's just gone. Joe needs a lot. She's someone who needs a lot of alone time. Right. She needs to be in her attic writing night and day, (laughs) having food pushed under the door for her, not speaking to anybody. She needs to withdraw. She needs to be sitting on the couch, have the pillow up to be like, don't talk to me. Right. So she can be withholding and she's definitely not as demonstrative or affectionate as Amy is, which is something that I think maybe Lori needs and has been missing. And maybe that's part of why he chased Joe for so long, because every kind of bit of affection she gave him was like, oh my God, I did it. I got her to look at me. You know, (laughs) it's hard. I think in a very real sense, basically, I think there is a lot of love between Joe and Lori. And I think they didn't necessarily have the understanding of gender or relationships that would allow them to put that into a mold that wasn't traditional husband and wife. So then it's surprising to me that Alcott was able to find a rendition of the husband-wife bond that was so subversive and weird for Amy and Lori to be in. I think she loved just playing with her readers and subverting expectations. And I mean, my understanding was she was never going to let Joe and Lori be a thing simply because everyone wanted that. Mm -hmm. And so I I think there's a subversion woven into all these relationships. Absolutely. So as we head into the final 
three chapters of this book? I mean, what are we looking forward to? What are we dreading? Well, I'm dreading Joe giving birth to 12 babies. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Tegan? I'm looking forward to a veritable sitcom of antics coming from Lori trying to work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, we're going to get into little men and Joe's boys, but I, my understanding is that Joe starts this school and calls it Plumfield. And then she has all these kids running around. And Lori is like, well, I'm going to start Lawrence College right next door. And we're all just going to live on this campus and be one big happy family. <laughs> so, and that sounds like the setup of a sitcom. That's what I'm saying. I think that's sitcom structure. There was a certain point I have not actually read. I've read one chapter of Joe's Boys that was in an Alcott reader, but I have not read Little Men or Joe's Boys because at this point I'm, I'm waiting to cover them on the podcast. So it'll be a little bit different. You'll get my live in the moment reactions. I won't know what's coming next. So look forward to that. Okay. Mel, Tegan, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you online? How can they support you? Where can they buy your older books and pre-order your forthcoming book? So our book is coming out in October. We don't have an exact date yet, but it'll be published by Knopf Books for Young Readers. You can find us at melhammondbooks.com. Yes, that's my name, but both of us are on there. And we have a joint TikTok at Hamtastic Duo. And then you can find me on Instagram at hamsandwichmel. Tegan, do you want to add anything? No, I don't have any of the other sort of online presence. Okay. Well, so if you go to TeganHammond.com, which is T-E-G-A-N Hammond.com, you will find the race car driver that I was very confused about. I will be checking that yes. out. Okay. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. You can also now find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, Q&As with future guests, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes. If you want to leave us a rating and a review, that'll really help us as we move into these final chapters and start booking guests for them. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Au revoir. (laughs) 